Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Susan, and I'm a very grateful member of what I like to call the Most Happy Fellowship. Because all I have to do is think about my first trip to Chicago in 1946 and compare the loneliness and sickness and the anxiety and anguish of that first trip with this wonderful trip today with you of the Most Happy Fellowship. And my gratitude is unlimited and also ever since Don invited me to be here, I felt so deeply honored and flattered to be on the same program with all the wonderful speakers, but particularly with my beloved Marty, whom you'll hear tonight, in whose office I joined the fellowship, and with Tom, whom you'll hear tonight, who had such a major part in my grasp of the 11th step. And just to qualify myself, as an alcoholic, because as you go along in years, not only on the program, but in chronological years, you know, people are always saying, oh, well, you know, you don't look like an alcoholic, and I can't believe that you ever were. In fact, my my baby, one of my babies, Kathy, who drove me over last night, said, I just can't believe that about you, as I was spinning a few stories over uh, dinner at the Palmer House. And so to qualify myself briefly, I just want to say that that on that first trip to Chicago in June 1946, I didn't draw a sober breath from the time I got in till the time I got out, so I never really saw Chicago until I came back to this part of the country a year and a half ago. And I was, at the time that I made my first contact with AA, when I first put foot in Marty's office on 103rd Street in New York, I was engaged in my last dreadful six months of drinking. And those of you who are alcoholics and those of you who are new AAs know what I'm talking about. Because I think, although I'm speaking only for myself and anything I say is my opinion and not the opinion of the group, of course, I think we all know what those shattering light bulbs in our brains are, what those mornings of remorse, what that dry throat, not just the dry throat that I get before speaking, but the real dry throat, which then puts your voice way down here like that, that cracked voice. But in those days, I had the effrontery and the presumption to go on the air five days a week in New York City and tell the women of... New York, Bronx, Brooklyn, and Queens, how to live right. That was my, that was my, that was my presumption. I would go on throwing my weight around 15 minutes a day of good, clean living over the microphone, and the rest of the day, you know what. Closing the bars of Greenwich Village at 4 a.m., usually, going back to my bottle of Gilby's, my Greenwich Village apartment, 
getting up four hours later at 8 a.m. with one eye and reaching to the bedside table for that tepid martini and taking a glug of it, doing a voice test to see how I could possibly go on the air that day, and it would start something like, Good morning, Susan, now are you this morning? And then I'd gradually get up, Good morning, Susan, and then I'd start croaking, and then I'd get in the cab, and the cab would have to stop at a Washington Square doctor who would try to spray my voice out so I could go on the air to tell women how to live right. And then I would get out of the cab, and then measuring my steps, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced rubber legs, but I know mine used to be that way, and I would sort of feel my way along the wall to the elevator, get in the elevator, try to hide my breath like this from the elevator operator and all those awful people in the elevator, go into the studio, sit there with my hand shaking, and as I read the news of interest to women today, it would rattle like a thunderstorm, you see, and the poor old engineer, he'd say, you know, stop it like that, and then I would breathe gently while interviewing some of America's most prominent ladies who all knew my ancestors and thought how lovely to be on a lovely radio program of this dear, sweet woman whose great aunt I knew, and then I would go off and collapse at the end of 15 minutes down to Lindy's for my daily double, my beginning of the serious drinking of the day, and so it would go go up to Park Avenue to my analyst, fling myself on the couch, tell him how sick I was, and then he would say, well, but we'll get to the root of your problem. You are, we don't know whether it's alcohol or not. Back to the village to prove I wasn't an alcoholic, fix up my shaker full of uh, five or six martinis and start the real serious drinking, and then, as I say, to bed at 4 a.m. This was my regular pattern of those last horrible months. Until one day, sitting in the hot office, it was before air conditioning was so universal, a sudden thought came to me, why don't I do a radio program on those poor benighted drunks in Alcoholics Anonymous? <laughs> so, Lady Bountiful, me, picked up the phone and in an arrogant, haughty voice said, this is Susan Blah Blah, send over a couple of your men that I can interview on my show, you know, big deal. And so I prepared for the show by getting doubly drunk the night before, and in came two clear-eyed, clean-cut men, then in their 30s, looking perfectly fine, and their names were Herb and Dave. I called them Mr. X and Mr. Y on the show, and... I got them on the air, and my eyes were so blurry that I couldn't even read the five ad-lib questions that I had written out, and they, sensing one of their own, took over, and, and they did a magnificent show, the best show. The women of New York heard something that day they had never heard before. Herb and Dave spoke on how to be happy, though sober, and I didn't get a chance to get a word in, which was very good. I grabbed Dave, who was Mr. X, grabbed him after the show and said, would you have lunch with me? And he said, of course. And we went out across the street to lunch, and I drank my lunch of 10 martinis, and he ate his. And then I suddenly poured out to a fellow human being, out of the prison of myself, I poured out, 
for the first time to another human being how worried I was about my drinking, how sick at heart I was, all the panic and the remorse, and then said, Mr. X, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And he said, Susan, can you make it to a cab or shall I pour you in one? <laughs> and ten days later, as I lay dying, which was a normal procedure, um, I was dying a little bit more that day because I had to face a couple of hostile newspaper men who were hostile for the wrong reasons, not the right reasons. And uh, I suddenly thought, I can't do it. I, I'm, I'm licked. I can't do it. I'm going to find that nice man I had lunch with, that Mr. X. So I called all over Manhattan AA to find Mr. X, whose name I had blotted out to protect his anonymity. And it took about 15 calls. And I finally found him, and I said, Dave, I found you. I'm dying. Come right over. And I thought he'd come galloping over on a white horse and hold my hand and have a little medicinal whiskey around his neck, you know, and that everything would be fine. Instead of which, he said, rather, rather coolly, I thought, rather heartlessly, I thought. He said, Susan, he said, in this program, women handle women and men handle men. I'll introduce you to the girls tomorrow. And my heart went thud. What a, what a disappointment. What a terrible thing. But anyhow, I made it up to 103rd Street where he told me to meet him the next day. I didn't have my morning belt because I figured that he had told me on his radio show that his sponsor had bought him his last drink. And I thought, well, I can make it till 12 noon perhaps and show what a good girl I am and not drink before I get there took me into Marty's outer office, and I saw these women. There was, Marty wasn't there at the moment. Marion was there and a few others. And I saw to my horror that, they, that Dave was leaving me with these women and that he was, they were taking me into a cafeteria. Well, I was case-hardened enough to know what a cafeteria meant, and I almost bolted down the street. But I went in with them, and four hours later, I was still sitting in Marty's outer office, listening to this immaculate, well-groomed matron tell me stories about her own drinking that made my hair stand on end and made me think I was Elsie Dinsmore. So, she knew exactly what was on my mind, so she said, please come to a meeting tonight, and before you go back to your Greenwich Village apartment, stop at the Washington Square bookshop, buy the big book. So, I made it to the bookshop. And I bought that book with that loud yellow jacket it had in those days. And I turned the jacket right inside out so none of my eight street cone prayers in the colony or the main street would see I was carrying this hideous book under my arm. And I made it back to my apartment, sweating like a horse, not just because it was August, but you know why. And I walked in there, and here was my Gilby's, and here was the book, and I was tempted naturally tried the Gilbys, but at that moment something happened, and I poured the Gilbys down the sink, and I started reading the book, and by the grace of God, I've been part of the most happy fellowship ever since, and this has been due entirely to the grace of God, and due entirely to my most happy fellows in the fellowship of death, and when people say, in the years since then, I've heard many wonderful people saying, well, you know, 
I love AA. I love being sober in AA. But I don't get the program very fast. I just laugh because I think I'm one of the slowest people ever to get the AA program. My first year in the program, someone said to me, take it like a cafeteria, easy does it, don't worry about it. And I took them literally, and although it took me only 19 months to accept the first step, it took me... It, uh, uh, I was saved from a real slip of, by um, going into a dry drunk instead. I've had five dry drunks uh, over the period of years, but I was saved by a chain of about 20 AAs who 12 steps made before a first drink at beauty parlors, preparing for their daughter's wedding, uh, in their business offices, I saw how it worked. And from that moment on, I accepted I was and am an alcoholic. But then it took me seven years to accept the beginnings of the 11th step, because I was one of those pagan atheists who pranced around the East, I shudder to think of it now. I mean, some of my behavior sober is just as bad as my behavior drunk. And my my gall in prancing around all over platforms because, of course, being glib, I got up and started talking after I was a year on the program, and I'd say, I am one of those who made the program without God. I am one of those who prove that you can do it without God. And God just laughed, too, because God laughed, I think, at any of us who do say that, because I didn't know then what I know now, is that the moment I put foot and walked across the threshold of my first AA meeting, and a week later walked across the threshold into a rather dingy, alcohol-smelling room on my first 12th set case, the moment I did those two things, I was hooked. I was hooked by God just as securely as I had been hooked before by the bottle. As William James, the great American psychologist, philosopher, once said, and said in his great varieties of religious experience, which Bill, our co-founder, happened to be reading as he lay dying at Towns Hospital, he said, the alcoholic has to trade bottle intoxication for God intoxication. And I didn't know that then, but all I knew was that after seven years, something began to stir in me, and I recognized that the power greater than myself was not just the men and women that were the lifesavers in every meeting I went to, but that there was some third element that whenever I walked into a meeting, there was a feeling of something sort of hovering over that meeting that was more than the individual men and women there, but that made me feel good when I came out. And I could go in just loaded down with the unholy three, fear, frustration, and resentment, and I could come out feeling like a very human being, but with something, some third element added. And then I knew that there was a difference between mechanical sobriety and what I like to call supernatural sobriety, or sobriety in depth. And seven years after I came on the program, I learned that the key for me to supernatural sobriety, the sobriety in depth, is the 11th step, that when I could get into any kind of contact with this vague 
power greater than myself, that something would happen. And I gradually formed the habit then of taking some time during the day, and this was at a time when I was looking out at the Caribbean, and it was very easy to take time and look at the infinite resting and smiling <coughs> repose of the Caribbean, and I would then begin to feel this presence. And in Jamaica, just as in Key West a year before that, where I was also in the naturally surrounded by the most happy fellowship, I began to feel this presence more and more. In Jamaica, for, uh, just to digress a moment, AA is a little bit different than it is in the Chicago area. Uh, you don't have uh, telephone service as you have here. You don't have uh, parkways and toll roads. If you want to get in touch with a fellow AA, don't use dime therapy. Don't use the telephone because the telephone system in the West Indies, at least in Jamaica, is so bad that you will probably get drunk before you get your call through. I learned that. And also I learned that uh, don't try to reach your peer or your baby or your superior in AA. Don't try to reach them by car in a short time. I know one time when I was in a very uh, sort of a sad doldrums down there, and I wanted to reach the one woman on the island who I felt one member of AA would be the one to blow off steam to at that point. And the driving is so tortuous in those back-of-bush roads that again, with that cheap rum at every roadside, it's a great temptation. So the best thing is to try to have your little group where you are. And sometimes we had five people in AA in Jamaica sober at one time, and that was a big deal. And one of them would be in Kingston, and one would be in Montego Bay, and one of them would be on the North Coast, and two others might be off the island at the time. But we would meet whether it was in a summer house over the sea or in a garage in Kingston, and whatever the difficulties of communication and the difficulties of transportation, we all spoke the language that we speak here in Chicago that was spoken by the 15,000 at Long Beach in 1960 that's being spoken in South Africa at this moment. The language of the heart of AA for love is communication, and we communicated there in Jamaica, as we communicate here, by love. And for me, the essence of the, the 11th step, thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out, the essence of that 11th step is communication. It is communication that unlocks one us from the prison of self, it is communication that opens up the pipeline between God and ourselves. And it is the key to what I call the path of AA. You get so much more than mechanical sobriety in AA. My feeling is that if you stick with it, we will get sobriety, we will get sanity, we will get surrender, we will get serenity, and I think if anyone ever lived the 12 steps totally and completely, he would get sanctity. That's my firm belief. Because the longer you go on in this program, the more you realize 
the genius of God operating through our founders and the pioneers in this program, that the 12 steps are a journey to perfection, to sanctity, if anyone ever follows them. We are not, as our chapter 5 says, trying to be saints. We are trying to progress on the spiritual way. But if you look at the 12 steps, you will see they follow the classical spiritual way from admission and awakening in step 1 and 2, uh, to the uh, prayer and meditation, to the cleansing step 4 to 10, and to the big step 3, the big surrender step, which is so essential, and finally to the 12th step, the last half of the 12th step, which is to practice these principles in all our affairs. And anyone who ever practiced these principles in all our affairs, I think, would be a saint. Because if I ever pass one hour of one day of my life in practicing the 12 steps, I would feel so set up that God has never let me do it because then I'd get filled with pride. Anyhow, the 11th step is the tool for supernatural sobriety. And prayer to me, as I've learned over these years, is just communication with God. As one great expert on prayer said, she said, prayer is just constant conversation with one we know loves us. In other words, prayer is talking to God, prayer is listening to God, and prayer is just being in the presence of God. And sometimes it's just saying, uh, thank you, Father. Sometimes it's just looking out and saying, there's God in his creation. And sometimes it's a prayer for the healing of someone you love or someone you know. But whatever it is, it is this constant communication, this constant conversation with God. Tom, whose book uh, helped me so much, whom you'll hear tonight, Tom Powers, uh, helped me in two ways on the 11th step. First of all, on the prayer without ceasing technique, which he mentions in his book, First Questions on the Life of the Spirit. And he doesn't even have any for sale here, so this is not a plug for his book, but it's such a great book. And he says, you can choose whether you're going to talk to your own self in worry, or you can choose whether you're going to talk to God. And after I read that, it made sense. So I decided that while I was waiting for a bus, while I was in some situation where I couldn't do more formal prayer, that instead of talking to myself about the income tax, about what I was going to do tomorrow, what dress I was going to wear to speak in Chicago, I'd start talking to God instead. And you'd be amazed what happens. You don't have to do it with any particular language. As I say, sometimes all I can get out because I am uh, distracted will be something like, thank you, Father. But sometimes in a bus ride or waiting for a bus, I'll say a thousand thank you, Fathers, and that much time has gone in communication with God rather than in communication with my worst self. Because the worst self is right under this lair, this veneer, of my AA life, of what I hope is supernatural sobriety. It is right there waiting to come out. And the second thing I learned so much from reading that book was on the key to prayer for me, which is surrender. It took me 13 years to take the third step in AA. And as I say, when anyone says he's slow, I just laugh, because I don't think many people took that long to make the third step. But... 
Again, in Tom's book, it says, you don't have to surrender your whole life and your whole will at once if you can't do it. Surrender a minute at a time. And this, to me, is a great saving thing. So that when I start to get back in the saddle, when I start to get my hands on the reins, when I start to throw my weight around again with my my will and my way, I just remember that, as Father Dicasode said, and Tom quoted him, just surrender this moment, this nasty letter that comes in, this rejection that comes in, this hurt that comes in, this tantrum that comes in, surrender this moment. And when I was in Arizona back in 1960 and was celebrating with a handful of Arizona AAs my anniversary in a beautiful desert place of quiet and peace, and they said, on this anniversary, what would you think is the most important thing that you have learned on the program, aside from your sobriety, naturally? And I said, well, the 11th step is far and away the most important thing. But the quality that I want and earnestly desire for the next years that are given me in AA is a quality without which the 11th step doesn't work at all. And that is the quality of humility, of recognizing the truth that God is everything and that I really am nothing, and that without him I can do nothing. And the humility statement given to me at San Diego is the goal on that, and I'd like just to read it because to me it sets me straight, sticks in my mirror where I can look at it every day of the world, Humility is perpetual quietness of heart. It is to have no trouble. It is never to be fretted or vexed, irritable or sore. To wonder at nothing that is done to me. To feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me. And when I am blamed or despised, it is to have a blessed home in myself where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my father in secret and be at peace as in a sea of calmness when all about is seeming troubled. And this goal is one, as I say, that I keep in my mirror because humility of heart is the highway to freedom and the freedom from self, which we, in the most happy fellowship, we sought self-oblivion in the bottle, we sought the anesthesia of self-oblivion in that way. Now that we're on the program, we're seeking the, what I consider the right kind of self-oblivion, which is the self-emptying, which is, as Emerson says, getting our bloated nothingness out of the way so the action of God can take place. And the way for me to get myself out of the way is through prayer and meditation and sometimes through contemplation. And the only way I can fill up with God is to empty myself of me. Or as one great teacher said in the 18th century, nothing separates me from the will of God but my own will. And at a time when I started to mount back into the saddle and when God sent a little thunderbolt to remind me who was running the show, this little prayer came to me, which has helped me ever since when I begin to fill up with too much of me and not make way 
for God. And I'd like to close with that. Lord, empty me of me that I may fill up with thee. Every minute I've spent on me, Lord, I now dedicate to thee. The more the world takes from me, the more will I produce for thee. The more perfect my confidence in thee, the more special thy providence to me. And whatever may happen to me, I say, blessed be the name of thee. be consistent with the tone of this meeting to spend any time plugging the quality which made our city famous. <laughs> However, while listening as intently as I could to Susan, and this is my first privilege and a rare one indeed, to share the platform with her, and I might tell you, Susan, I could almost classify it as my second, the first and last. You are simply too magnificent for one mere man to follow. But I was looking over this crowd and noticing all these people from Milwaukee. And if I may, I would like to introduce them to you. Would you stand, all of you Milwaukee people who are here this morning? Let's see who you are. I'm. Look at all of them. 10.30 in the morning. <laughs> I can't use the product any longer, but I can use a lot of these people, I can tell you. When I came to AA, ladies and gentlemen, about eight years ago, as a completely bankrupt human being, it was impossible for me to realize the spiritual riches which lay out on the perimeter, as I call it, of this fellowship or this philosophy which we refer to as Alcoholics Anonymous. But it was a strange series of coincidences. One of the first pieces of AA literature I picked up was one written by a man whom I had known for a good long time, a man who oddly enough did not have this strange and insidious problem called the disease of disenchantment, but a man who had long, long been a dear and faithful friend of AA. He was the late beloved Father Ed Dowling of St. Louis who together with the Anglican churchman Sam Shoemaker had a great deal to do in shaping the spiritual impact of all that AA represents today. Many times, Father Dowling, Father Pug, as a good many of us knew him, said that in the spiritual tradition, this 11th step which you and I are here to consider this morning, in the spiritual tradition, this was the practice of the presence of God. I didn't come to AA looking for God. I came here looking for a method to disassociate myself permanently from the mad, compulsive desire to drink alcohol. I only knew that there were people here who had been successful in this venture. 
What they had done with themselves beyond that point was a complete mystery to me. I think, however, that it is safe to say that you and I as alcoholics are in full agreement on one great fact, that this philosophy, which is peculiarly ours, is in essence the slow seeping of Almighty God, however you or I understand him, into the eroded soul of a human being which, much like the land on much of the surface of the earth, is eroded by the flash floods and the uncontrollable torrents, which in our case is the flow of alcohol. As the flash floods subside, or the torrents, the drought that returns to that eroded soul is even worse. And it is here in AA that one day at a time, Within the structure of the program we call Alcoholics Anonymous, that we begin to grow and to develop as human beings. We come to a point where we begin to recognize our inherent dignity as human beings, and that is an impossibility unless we can tie it in with some relationship to the God of our understanding. You and I could not sanely pursue some power greater than ourselves unless we first set up a communication system. That's the word that Susan used, communication. A communication system between ourselves and something that was above and beyond us. And whether that communication system be vocal or mental is neither here nor there. It has to be established, and in the 11th step, it's defined as prayer and meditation. I sometimes think as one of those men who had been privileged to have been a part of the AA scene for these eight years, that we have a tendency to talk too much about prayer without ever attempting to define it. There was no point in discussing it with me eight years ago. There were no words in this program that were alien to me. I had heard prayer and meditation, charity, humility, tolerance, love, understanding. I had learned the Lord's Prayer at my mother's knee. And yet I used prayer in a strange, strange fashion, always in a method to extricate myself from the jam in which I found myself after a drinking bout, or perhaps as a type of therapy which would insulate me against all the strain and stress and tension which is part and parcel of everyday living. However, when I got into this 11th step, I discovered that I was trapped. Because there was something that was beyond prayer and meditation. It said that we used them. We used them for a specific purpose. To establish a closer contact with the God of our understanding. And even that wasn't enough. The net was drawing a little tighter. Because the whole object of this prayer, the whole object of our meditations, was to seek a knowledge of his will for me. And then to ask for the courage to carry it out. I had neither courage, 
And most certainly I had no understanding of divine will. And I think that Almighty God, with what must be a divine sense of humor, must laugh out loud on occasion when an alcoholic of my type who has spent half of his adult life, or perhaps more, screaming, give me my will, my whims, and my desires, and give them to me now, suddenly finds himself with his heart on his knees, praying that his will be done. Not mine, but your will. That was the essence for me of the eleventh step. This ruled out any need for me to continue praying for a new pink Cadillac. It also ruled out all the frustrations I once knew as a newspaper reporter at $75 a week when I was sure that the great American novel literally cried out to high heaven to be written. And because my frustrations and my anger and my resentment were so great, I got drunk. But I was trapped again in the eleventh step because it had told me that again it was not my will but his. And so I began casting about for some interpretation of God's will for me as a drunk. And one day on the dust jacket of a little book that came to me as a gift, I found that question resolved. What was God's will? And as all things in AAR, simple, basic, I discovered that this divine will for me was simply accepting the circumstances of the moment for what they are. As part of some divine plan, which I may never quite understand this side of eternity, but which I, as an alcoholic, had better accept if I want to remain sober. If I want to be a part and parcel of the mainstream of life, which is my obligation, then I had better accept these circumstances of the moment as part of his will for me. And I had better do away with all the nonsensical ideas about the great American novel. And if it still plagued me, I had better sit down with a typewriter or with a pen and begin to work on it. And this was something that I couldn't do while drinking. Now, prayer in establishing a communication, and Susan pointed this out too, there's always seemed to me begins to establish a three-way communication. One with ourselves, one with our fellow man, and one with the God of our understanding. God help me is a superb prayer. It might be the most efficacious prayer that an alcoholic could possibly breathe. If it is breathed with the right attitude, with the proper faith, and the humility that must be a part of it. God keep me sober this day is another magnificent prayer and one which I think you and I can never forget. Now this is the establishment, or perhaps the re-establishment for some of us, of a communication with the God of our understanding. And in return, and this does not come simply, in return these spiritual riches of AA begin to become well-defined out there on the perimeter, on the horizon. 
we begin to recognize again our inherent dignity as human beings. We begin to realize, and so I believe, that we are creatures of a divine creator, that we're here for a specific purpose, that if our meditation carried us no farther than this, where did I come from, what am I doing here, and where am I going, this might conceivably be enough. Because in that kind of a meditation, we are using the three faculties of the mind. Memory, will, intellect. We're turning them all to one little cause. And perhaps this is why, in the very early days of AA, such great emphasis was laid on the five-minute quiet time each day. The little five-minute period when the member of AA could withdraw from all the strains and stresses and tensions which are part of living and establish some communication with the God of his understanding. Prayer in itself is most certainly, in a very, very simple form, nothing more than a bridge which you and I are given the opportunity to create between ourselves and God. But as I begin to pursue the overall idea of this 11th step, I discovered that a lot of great minds down through history have given great time to understanding, to delineating, to attempting to assess that which prayer is. And I discovered that Moriac at one time, in a very, very profound definition, said that prayer was taking a direction. This is one that knocked one ex-drunk right off his feet. And once again, I was trapped and perhaps trapped to the point where I thought I might resign. But I have discovered as an AA that it's rather difficult to resign from a point of view. I was completely and utterly convinced that I was an alcoholic. It was perfectly obvious to anyone who knew my record, to anyone who knew me, that if I were to achieve sobriety on a permanent basis, I had to take a direction. And I feel very strongly that that's exactly what the AA does in the very first step of this program. He takes the direction. In my own case, I know that this was the first exercise in humility, this first step, that I had engaged in in all of my adult years. I had taken a direction, and the direction pointed straight up. It couldn't go any lower. There was only one place to go, and that was up. And so here I was again confronted with a definition of prayer which said exactly the same thing. It said that I was taking a direction each time I prayed. And I wondered about the attitudes and the physical posture. And AA is not concerned, I'm sure. But then I remember one time hearing that remarkable fellow Patsy from Minneapolis saying that when he prayed, he knelt down. He knelt down for a very specific purpose. Because he believed that any man who could kneel humbly before the God of his understanding could stand humble before men. And so I got down on my arthritic knees, and I began to pray. And I wasn't much different than a lot of friends I have in AA, because I frankly don't know what I was praying for other than sobriety. 
So one night, not too long ago, my wife and I were discussing prayer with a clergyman friend of ours. And we touched on the subject of how you go about acquiring the habit of prayer. And once again, the simplicity of AA was imposed. He said, how did you learn to ride a bike? You practiced. I practiced as a kid. And as a grown man, not a very mature man, but as an adult man, I had to practice the whole concept of prayer. It's not easy. One friend of mine tells me that for four years, day and night, he said his prayers very devoutly after he had been told at Hazelden that this was one method of staying sober, one of the methods which AA advocated. And for four years, it had utterly no meaning until one day the heavens opened in a sense and what he was setting out to do became evident to him. And he said, at that point, my life began to change. Now, Ronald Knox, during his days as an Anglican, referred to prayer, the most perfect prayer, as simply doing God's will. And there again, it seems to me that the AA is trapped. Because here it is, not my will, but thine be done. And I think that you and I, who have had the problem of addictive drinking, we who have been reduced to nothing. And that term always reminds me of the Finnish theologian who one time said, those whom God would use, he first destroyed. I think this has a particular bearing and a particular meaning for the alcoholic because all of us, in a sense, have been destroyed. And certainly it is our duty and it is our obligation to do our utmost, however we can, to point out to the newcomer who comes here looking for hope and succor, to point out to him the value of this 11th step, the absolute necessity, if he is going to become the mature, well-integrated personality that you find so frequently among AA people who have taken this program to their hearts and their minds. This, I believe, as I looked at all the serene faces with which I was surrounded eight years ago, this was something, most certainly, which was not reflected in my face. This was something I had to do something about. And it certainly became very evident that it was a long and tedious struggle, but a struggle that was worthwhile. And when we begin to meditate, and I know this is an old story, but it always seems strangely apropos, for we people in AA. Of the three hermits who had retired to a hillside cave there to meditate in complete and utter silence, staring at a wall day in, day out. When on an especially beautiful Sunday morning, a magnificent brown stallion rushed past the entrance of the cave. Five years later, the first hermit said that was a beautiful white stallion. Seven years later, the second hermit said that was not a brown stallion, white stallion, sir, that was a brown stallion. Eleven years later, the third hermit got to his feet and said, Gentlemen, I'm leaving here. I can't stand this constant bickering. <laughs> Perhaps that's the attitude we have in mind. I think that was mine when I approached the whole concept of meditation. I thought that this was great stuff. 
For the religious of the world, those who had taken the veil, those who had retired behind the monastic wall, I thought, what part can this play in a 20th century society? How can we meditate what I've learned? I've learned that you can drive your car down a highway and meditate. I've learned that you can come to a stop sign and instead of swearing at that girl in the right lane who's trying to make a left-hand turn, you can pray. You can say, God help me. And these are the things that have come to me through AA and all the reasons. As I said, I learned the Lord's Prayer. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.